from Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna Grace. For what it's worth, there's one other place you can find rats in kitchens, and that's if you live in a house with a bunch of college guys. Um, but you won't experience that, so good for you. Um, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at and study your word this morning. I pray that we would be in a place where we are vulnerable to you, where we are open to change based on what you communicate to us through your spirit this morning. I pray that you would help me not to be a hindrance to that message, uh, but an avenue, a conduit of it. And so, Father, we come uh, to feed on your word, and I pray that we would be filled. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, greetings this morning. I'm Pastor Ransom Kendall, the pastor here at Grace. A personal note before we jump into the scripture, um, Tim Keller says that it takes a pastor about 200 sermons to, to get good at preaching. Uh, today is my 100th sermon at Grace, and so uh, we're halfway there. Come on, stick with me, all right? And so I'm just so thankful to have the opportunity to preach uh, week in, week out here, and I'm thankful to be the pastor here at Grace, and uh, here's to 100 more. Um, and then that's it, who knows after that, but... Hey, so uh, when you're looking at Scripture, context is always important, but here in this passage, we really need to immerse ourselves in this story. There's a shift in tone in Matthew as we approach chapter 17. Uh, so let's recap here. Last week, we saw Jesus walk on water on the storm. Uh, just before that, he had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So he's been doing miracles. He's continued since that point to continue healing and doing miracles. He's done another feeding miracle of 4,000 men plus women and children. Uh, he's been teaching around the northern part of Israel. He's had more conflict with the leaders of, of the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes. They're growing more and more hostile towards him. He, in return, uh, is calling them out more and more clearly on their hypocrisy and their sins. In the meantime, in, the, in his uh, time with his disciples, he's been slowly bringing them along to this idea that he is the Messiah. Now, uh, he's been doing that slowly for a reason. You see here he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He's chosen this kind of uh, uh, not uh, well, uh, much used term for the Messiah to explain it. 
And so we have, just before this passage, it's actually the passage from my first sermon at Grace, Peter makes his famous declaration. What does he say in verse 16? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, of course, responds, upon this rock, I will build my church. And if you recall my first sermon, church isn't about you. Church isn't about me. It's about what Jesus is doing and us pressing in there. And so here we have this declaration. The disciples are beginning to get it. He's the Messiah. They've been waiting for Him. And, and so here we have in chapter 16, we're going to see here that, that Matthew has a shape. If you could draw Matthew, it's like a pyramid. And so what we've been learning about from Matthew 1 all the way to Matthew 17, the transfiguration is kind of this upward uh, trajectory towards the culmination, the peak of Matthew. And the peak, of course, is when Jesus brings his three closest disciples up on the mountain. He reveals his full divinity to them. That is the peak of Matthew. And that's the next chapter after this. But here in this passage, it's like a road sign. It's signaling this change that's coming. And, and the change goes from this upward trajectory of realizing just who Jesus is, and it's beginning what many scholars call the march of death, which sounds so positive. The march of death. And so, Jesus has been ministering abroad in Israel. Now, his sights are set on Jerusalem. We see this in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day be raised. So, he, he, is, he was ministering generally in, to, the, to the general populace of Israel. Now he is aimed at Jerusalem. He has been teaching, healing, slowly revealing who he is. Now he is dead set on the cross. The reason he came. Why is there a touch of sadness that comes with Christmas? Because that little child, that precious baby was born to die for our sins. That's why he was born. I mentioned during Advent, yes, he escaped Herod's evil grip, but he faced the cross at the end of his life. Tragedy. Whole new meaning to the idea that Jesus is now dead set on heading to Jerusalem. And so here, the, the, the tone is changing. The tone is changing. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, this is the first Sunday that if, if you uh, uh, recognize Lent, so this is this first Sunday that we turn our attention towards the cross by the calendar year of the church. And so here we do the same. Jesus has brought his disciples along. They get it. Well, mostly. <laughs> they get it. And now he's saying, we have to finish my mission. If we were watching a movie, this would be the moment where the plot thickens. You're thinking, what's going to happen next? How, how is this possible? We've been watching Jesus reveal his greatness and his goodness and his power. But now he's talking about suffering and dying. And so as we look at this passage, this passage starts with salvation. Starts with salvation. I just read it to you. Jesus declares what he must do. Now, uh, this is, it, let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes or the sandals, I guess, of the disciples. Uh, they, they are just now understanding that he's the Messiah. In their world, in their context, that's an amazing thing. The Messiah deserves all honor and glory and greatness, and he's going to rule not just Jerusalem, but the whole world. And so they've got this idea of who Jesus is, and then Jesus lays this new piece of information on them. This is shocking to them. Now, we as 21st century Christians, we know the end of the story, so when we hear this, we're like, oh yeah, that happens. We know about that. This is all new to the disciples. Jesus, in their mind, 
is the Messiah. He is deserving of honor, glory, and greatness. And so what he's just described is utter humiliation. He's going to be rejected by the most learned men that we know. He's going to suffer and die on a cross. It doesn't compute for them. It's shocking. And Peter reveals, and we'll look at that in a moment, just how shocking it is to him. But as a quick sidestep, I want to just mention that this, excuse me, the inclusion of this in the gospel is proof for the truth of the gospel. It's proof for the truth of the gospel. Uh, This shocking uh, event, an unexpected turn, the fact that the disciples included this in, in their recount of who Jesus was is proof of the truth of the gospel. So assume for a moment you're writing a story about a hero, not just any hero, but the greatest hero that ever lived. The greatest hero, the, the, the hero responsible for the salvation of the world. Would you write in that story that you're making up, that you want people to believe is a hero, would you write in something that was absolutely the most humiliating thing you could think of? No, you would not. No, you would not. You wouldn't do that. And so if you're making up a story about a champion for your cause, yes, they may have obstacles. Yes, they may have troubles. Think about like the Avenger movies. They have these things. How are they going to beat Thanos? But they do in the end, and they're great. This is, for Jesus, a humiliating turn of events. He's going to be crucified by the Romans, their Messiah. So the fact that this part of the story is in the gospel is evidence towards It's truth. So let's unpack this message first from verse 21. What is the message of salvation from Jesus? First of all, let's look at this word must. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed. I must be raised. We have to understand, church and everyone else listening, the death of Jesus wasn't an accident. Whoopsie. (laughs) No, not at all. It, it, It was the essential mission of Jesus Christ. He was sent for that One purpose, to die for our sins. And there was no other way, because why? God had not planned any other way. This was it. Sin had to be dealt with. And he dealt with it through Jesus Christ. He also must suffer. This is more than just the torture and the questioning that he'd undergo, more than the flogging and the beating. Crucifixion was absolutely humiliating. It was very public. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. The rejection by the Pharisees and the scribes. Think about this. Uh, They march out Barabbas, and they march out Jesus, and the crowd say, we want Barabbas. This is humiliation. This is suffering. And Jesus could have answered. Jesus could have defended himself, and yet what did he do? Silently he went to slaughter. And then, of course, he must be killed. Not just killed in a secretive way or even like uh, by a guillotine, Uh, he died, he was killed in this awful, egregious way. Many people don't know that that crucifixion doesn't kill by blood loss, it kills by suffocation. You you are in too much pain to lift yourself up to breathe, and so you slowly run out of breath. That's crucifixion. So this public death reserved for the worst criminals, this is what Jesus was aimed at. But here's good news. Here's the good news of salvation. He would be Raised God the Father raised him who poured out his wrath, the wrath you and I deserve. We deserved that death. We deserved our sins to be punished. And again, sin must be dealt with, but instead of doing that, 
On us, what did God do? God the Father poured out the punishment of our sins on Christ as if it was His, and then He raised Him again in honor and glory and greatness. And then He credits that honor, glory, and greatness to us as if it belongs to us. This is the defining feature of Christianity. The provision of salvation. God's not up there saying, hey everybody, good luck. Here's how you do it. I'll be up here when you get here. That's not how God of Christianity works. Every other religion in one way or another says, here's what you need to do. Here's where you got to get. So good luck. Best of luck. And they might even sometimes say, it's in you. Just try harder. Christianity has a humble Savior, not an arrogant one. He has a, we have an accessible Savior. Do you hear that? An accessible Savior, not a distant one. Not calling from the shore, but He swims out into the ocean to rescue you. So church, listen, this, this message of salvation, this message of Jesus' musts is not just for those who are asking who is Jesus or what should I do about Jesus or, or seekers. It's for us too. Think about the life that Jesus lived. He lived the hardship of kingdom life. He lived it out. This is the way it was designed. It's, one author this week I was reading said, death and humiliation were the way of, to glory for Jesus Christ. Death and humiliation were the way to glory. He picked up His cross. He denied Himself and served others. He did not try to preserve worldly success. And He did all of that on purpose. Why? Because He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and He must die and He must be raised. It's a pattern for us. It's a it's the gospel for us. Jesus did that already for us. Now we, whether we like to think about it or not, tend to think like Peter. And so let's take a look at verse 22. Peter's problem is our problem. Peter's problem is our problem. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside, Jesus, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Let's break down what's going on. So, Taking Jesus aside is actually a term uh, that means like a friendly, hey, let's chat for a second. Um, and so it's not like he's being aggressive with Jesus. However, when it gets to rebuking and saying, far be it from you, this is fascinating. These words actually have a sense of forgiveness in them already, meaning, Jesus, I forgive you for what you just said. Uh, of course you don't have to do this. Peter's being condescending. He's the, the man he just declared as Lord and Master, he's saying, listen to me. You're wrong. This isn't the way. The Messiah is, is great. The Messiah deserves glory and honor, humiliation and death. This is not what you mean, Jesus. He corrects him. He corrects him. And here we have this awesome reaction by Jesus. All right, let's take a look. Verse 23. I like that it says he turned, because that means Peter was kind of talking to him while Jesus wasn't looking at him. He turned and said, Peter, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, we need to break down this statement to kind of get to the, the, the potency of it. Get behind me. Uh, this phrase means I'm ignoring you. Get behind me. I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to pretend you're not there. Uh, the fact that Jesus refers to Peter in the proper noun Satan, it's unprecedented. It doesn't happen anywhere else in Scripture. 
All right, doesn't have, this, is, this is serious. Uh, Satan at this point in, in Jewish theology was a singular destructive force they believed was aimed at destroying God's people. <laughs> you see what, what, what Jesus is saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, I'm ignoring what you just said. What you suggest is destructive to the plan of salvation. That's what he's saying. He's not just calling him names. He's making a, a statement. I must go. And Peter says, no, you don't have to. And he's saying, if I don't, then there is no salvation. There is no salvation. Peter looks to stand in the way of that. Then we come to verse 24. And verse 24, if you're familiar with uh, the terminology of filmmaking, um, Jesus breaks the fourth wall. So think about this. If this is your television set and you're watching, uh, so this actually works for you folks at home. These are the three walls that, that normally characters in a show or a movie interact. And sometimes, we've all seen these movies or shows, they look out to the audience and they speak to them. It's called breaking the fourth wall. Jesus here is not simply speaking to the 12. It says here, if anyone, this is a statement for those 12 disciples. This is a statement for every person who the, the next phrase refers to for all of time. Jesus turns out of Scripture and he looks directly at you and me. Let's hear what he has to say. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Before we get into what Jesus is talking about, um, let me just remind you something that we talked about last week, the idea that Scripture is not difficult to understand. And so our, 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 one of our issues as disciples is not that we are confused about what God wants us to do. Rather than being confused or, or misunderstanding the, the matter of the fact, the fact of the matter is we just don't want to obey. <laughs> we need to come to terms with that. And so what Jesus is about to lay down is one of those moments. It's very clear. It's very clear what he's telling his disciples they ought to do. He, he, it's very clear. He said, I am earning your salvation. I am, I am buying you with the price. Now here's what discipleship looks like is what he's going to talk about. So the passage starts with salvation and now it transitions from what Jesus has done and, and has already done for us and now he's turning to what we do in response to that. Discipleship. And it's one of those moments whether we will believe and follow or not believe and not. And so what does it say here? If anyone would come after me, he's also saying if anyone would follow me, what is this idea, come after, follow? This is a disciple, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. That's who this is for. If you would follow me, if you would adhere to, to, to me, have faith in me and follow me, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The first thing he asks those who would follow him to do is to not deny themselves. Deny themselves. The word deny here means refuse to recognize refuse to recognize? Let me ask you this. What's the way of the world? The way of the world, the idea of the world is love yourself first and then you can love others. Me, 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 me. What I need, what I need, what I need. That's the opposite of what's being talked about here. I've said many times that um, I think through the, the art of the world, they, they sometimes inadvertently are, are very self-aware. Uh, there's a band called Arcade Fire and they have a song called Creature Comforts. And here's the beginning of the chorus. 
God, make me famous. If not, make it painless. God, make me famous. If not, make it painless. In one way or another, is this not oftentimes our prayer to God? God, make it all work out. Make it all great. Make my reputation amazing. Make these goals that I have work out. And if not, just make it comfortable. Just make it comfortable. This is the way of the world. This is the idea, the teaching of the world. Leon Morris describes this, this idea of not denying ourselves this way. It's to concentrate on what serves our own interest. To make oneself as prosperous as one can, Jesus calls on all his true followers to renounce such self-interest. Deny ourselves. The second thing, take up his cross. Take up our cross. This verb take up is active and ongoing. It's on purpose. It's not like, oh, a cross. Guess I'll walk with it. No, it's putting your knees under it and, and lifting it. Now, we have trivialized this statement in our culture. <laughs> if there's something slightly annoying to us, what do we say? Well, I guess that's my cross to bear. We've made it light and, and funny. And in fact, R.T. France says this is not something, uh, it's not about suffering some patient, patiently some irritation. It's about setting off to public execution. The disciples understood that this was not some cutesy statement. Jesus was saying something very serious. They understood the mockery, the shame, the ridicule, the pain, the public aspect, the humiliating, exhausting path to death that, that Jesus carried with this idea of taking up your cross. Yikes. <laughs> Oof. Leon Morris again says, Jesus was speaking about a death to a whole way of life. He was talking about the, up, uh, about the utmost in self-sacrifice, a very death to selfishness and all forms of self-seeking. Jesus calls his disciples. He calls me, church. He calls you in this very challenging way to take up a whole new lifestyle. A different one. David Platt has a book called Radical. I know some of you have read it. Uh, it's a short read. It's very challenging. He says in, in that book, Jesus doesn't beg for a little bit of our time Sunday mornings. Jesus wants every minute of every day of our lives. He goes on to say, we've got to reject this luxury liner view of Christianity and take up the troop carrier view. It's a radical way of thinking. It's rejecting a particular way of life and accepting one that follows Christ. Jesus gives a logical explanation to what he means in verses 25 and 26. In other words, what he's saying here is you can't eat your cake and have it too. You can't eat the, the slice of, I just had a birthday this week. You can't eat your, your ooey gooey butter bar that your wife made you and then have the same one again. You can't do that. He says here, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is very clearly saying, listen, you can't stay here and be there. You can't be self-seeking and experience real abundant life as you follow Christ. You can't dwell on the earthly and dwell on, on the things of God. You can't do both of those things. Remember what he said to Peter as he was sinking last week. He said, why did you doubt? Remember, that's the same word for trying to move in two different directions at the same time. 
It's the same idea here. If we focus, church, on our resources and using those resources to benefit ourselves, the rewards of the physical world in pursuit of self-profit that is not following Christ. It's not the same thing. It can't be the same thing. You don't gain the benefits of following Jesus through hard times and suffering. And so that's where we come to this moment for belief. This moment for, are we going to believe what Jesus is saying or we're going to ignore it? As humans, we tend to look at what? The losses. We look at the losses. We look at our comfortable lives. We look at our lives. We look at what we have, what we want. And we, as we think about the sacrifice and suffering that Jesus is describing, man, it sounds hard. <laughs> Doesn't it? Can we agree it sounds so hard? It sounds so unpleasant. I like some of the things in my life that are on the earthly side. And so what do our natural sinful brains do? We focus in on the losses. On the losses. And that results in us, like Peter, taking Christ aside in our lives and saying, oh Jesus, I forgive you for that. There's got to be some other way, right? I can keep all this stuff and we can do some other thing where, where it doesn't require as much. We can do that, right? Same thing as Peter. It's a dwelling on the earthly. Again, David Platt says, the cost of non-discipleship is profoundly greater for us than the cost of discipleship. For when we abandon the trinkets of this world and respond to the radical invitation of Jesus, we discover infinite treasure of knowing and experiencing him. And that's been Jesus' point in chapter 1 through chapter 16 so far. What we lose in following Christ is nothing compared to what we gain in following him. What we lose is nothing compared to what we gain. In fact, it's these gains that Jesus talks about in this passage that provides our motivation for discipleship. Remember, we're not earning salvation. Verse 21 declares, I have won your heart for you. You don't have to do that. And so follow me out of this thing that I've done. He says, as you follow me, you'll gain certain things. Look at what you gain first. He says in verse 25, whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. So you're going to find life. It's the first thing. As you follow Christ and, and you, you, you lose the earthly obsession with comfort and we follow Christ wherever he may go, we gain true life. Leon Morris, his pillar commentary on Matthew is excellent. I really recommend it. Uh, he says this, if we regard life as no more than this ordinary physical life, if we spend our time and our resources on getting as much out of this life as we can, Jesus is saying we lose life in its most important sense. To spend oneself trying to get the best one can out of the, the, this present life, the here and now, is to lose life in its fullest sense. Where is life found? Where is life found? It's found, according to Jesus, in following him. How? How is that possible? Listen, God is provision. God is provision. God is treasure. God is Satisfaction. He doesn't provide these things for us like a vending machine. He is these things. 
And what's the way to God? The way to God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we follow Christ, what do we discover? God is our provision. God is our treasure. God is our satisfaction. And that is where true life comes from. Not only do we find true life, we get to keep our soul. That seems like a good thing, right? In Matthew 10, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, Jesus reminds the disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Who holds our soul in his hands? God. God does. Calvin, in his commentary, reminds us that our souls were created for eternity. And he says to, to waste something so valuable on the trivial things of our present lives is a costly mistake. And he concludes this, yet men are so blinded by carnal views that they knowingly and willfully abandon their souls to destruction. Why? We want comfort so badly. We want the world so badly. We want all these things that our flesh wants so badly. So we say, you know what? It's worth it. And we spend it. Verses 27 and 28 give us the last motivation from the gospel of salvation in our discipleship. And it, he says this, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay. That's another word for reward each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there were some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Through, throughout Matthew, there is reward. We've been talking about this quite a bit. Sermon on the Mount, we talked about rewards a few times since then. What is our reward, church? What is it? Our reward is eternity in the presence of God. That's it. That's what it is. The, 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 the place that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, were created to be, we get to be there. Despite our sin, despite our awfulness, despite what we deserve, we get to be with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is our reward. There's also rewards in the now the joy and fulfillment that we experience as we pursue Jesus Christ. So the question is, are we going to be like Peter in this scenario? Are we going to be like Peter? David Platt, again, says, do we believe the reward found in Christ is worth the risk of following Him? And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't lead me. You can't tell me how it's going to be. I am going to save you, and then I'm going to call you to follow me. There will be sacrifices. There will be losses. There will also be infinite gains. And so for us to say, Lord, there has to be another way. <laughs> well, first of all, there's not. <laughs> there's no other way. There's no other way than this. There's either this side or that side. And it doesn't coincide with where you're sitting in the church or how you're sitting on the couch at home. No, it's either the earthly mindset that Peter demonstrated or the godly mindset. Follow me, Peter, wherever I go. Why? I am going to save you. And so the answer for us is where do we go from here? This is so difficult, church. We are all entwined in our comfortable lives. We are. Every single one of us. We struggle in some way with this teaching. And so what is the answer? Repentance and renewal. That's the answer. We're called by Jesus here to repent. After Peter did and said what he said, he turned to every one of his disciples and made this declaration. We all focus too much on our earthly things. 
We all see the value of the losses more than the value of the gains. One way or another, we do. We're scared to lose some things as we follow Christ. And so we must repent. We have an opportunity here in just a few moments to use the Lord's Supper just for that. To to think about the sacrifice and the cost of salvation that Jesus paid. We don't have to pay it. Christ did that for us. And then it was credited to us. But it's got to be more than just the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. It's got to be an ongoing thing. We don't want to feel bad about it today and go back to it tomorrow. What's the point of that? Sinclair Ferguson in his short book called The Grace of Repentance says this, biblical repentance is not merely a sense of regret that leaves us where it found us. It's a radical reversal that takes us back along the road of our sinful wanderings, creating in us a completely different mindset. Is that not what Jesus is talking about in this passage of Scripture? And so this morning, let's renew our commitment to become more like Christ. Why? Because it impresses God? No, it doesn't. Because it makes us better people? It probably won't for for a long time. We renew our commitment to Christ because of the price He paid for us on the cross. And He says, follow me. And so if you hear anything this morning, here's what I want you to hear. This is what I needed to hear this morning. Discipleship, following Christ, happens on purpose. (laughs) We're not just walking through life, doing what we do, and it falls on us on accident. Oh, I guess I'm more like Christ. No, we've got to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Christ on purpose. On purpose. Understand that as long as we're not killing the flesh, it's thriving. And so we look at verse 24 and we pray, follow, Father, as we, as we follow Christ, may we have the courage and the power of the Holy Spirit to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray just that. I pray that in the context of the gospel, we would remember the very price you paid. A price we owed and and could not afford. The infinite cost of our sins against an infinite God. And yet, you made a way for our sin to be dealt with in a way that causes us to avoid our punishment and to gain all that you owe your Son. Jesus Christ died for me. May I follow Him. May I take up my cross. May I deny myself. I struggle with this. We all do. And so I pray this morning that we would not hear the Scripture saying, okay, get it done, or God's not pleased. May we hear the Scripture say, Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died a death that I deserved. He rose again in victory. And He calls me to be His brother, the Son of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. And may that motivate us to say, this world is worth nothing. Christ is worth worth everything. May we see the gains. May we not count the losses. May we lead ourselves and our families and our friends 
in that direction. May we be disciples on purpose, Lord. Disciples on purpose. I pray that this morning as we go to the table that you have laid before us, that we would be nourished, that we would begin this renewal process of committing our lives to following Christ, experiencing the gains of that. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.